This is a five train. The next stop is Wall Street. Herzlich willkommen zu Wall Street Weekly, dem Börsenpodcast aus New York. Ich bin Sophie Schimanski, schön, dass Sie mit dabei sind. Erinnern Sie sich noch, wir haben beim Ölmal vom schwarzen Gold gesprochen. Und die Zeiten sind natürlich angesichts der vergangenen Woche vorbei. Der Ölpreis ist letzte Woche zwischenzeitlich auf Null und dann sogar ins Negative abgerutscht. Also Ölproduzenten haben Abnehmern bis zu 40 Dollar gezahlt, um die Suppe loszuwerden. So, und wenn Sie jetzt Probleme haben, sich das vorzustellen, dann sind Sie nicht alleine. Präsident Trump konnte es bei einer Pressekonferenz im Weißen Haus letzten Montag gar nicht fassen, als ein Reporter ihn auf die negativen Preise im Terminmarkt für Öl hinwies. Zwei Tage später ging es übrigens wieder nach oben und den Rest der Woche auch. Es scheint keinen Sinn zu machen. Diese Kursbewegungen, die liegen vor allem an Spekulanten. Der Ölmarkt ist gerade von allen Seiten unter Druck, von der Nachfrageseite und von der Angebotsseite und vom US-Präsidenten, der steigende Preise will, auf einmal. Wenn der US-Präsident eine 180-Grad-Wende vollzieht, öffentlich, dann lohnt es sich genauer hinzuschauen. Eigentlich war Trump jahrelang Fan von niedrigen Ölpreisen. Günstiges Öl kann Schmiermittel für die Wirtschaft sein, klar. Seit er im Amt ist, hat Trump die OPEC wiederholt scharf kritisiert dafür, dass sie mit hohen Preisen den Amerikanern und der Wirtschaft schaden. In der Vergangenheit hat Trump die OPEC fälschlicherweise, muss man dazu sagen, als Monopol bezeichnet, das aufgelöst werden müsse. Das hier sagte er bei der UN-Generalversammlung in New York im September 2018. OPEC and OPEC nations are We want them to stop raising prices. We want them to start lowering prices. We are not going to put up with it these horrible prices much longer. Doch ein niedriger Ölpreis schadet Ölproduzenten und kostet Jobs in der Ölindustrie. Die US-Ölindustrie ist mächtig. Trump braucht ihre Unterstützung, um bei den Wahlen große Bundesstaaten wie Texas zu gewinnen. Wohlwissend verlangt er nun einen steigenden Ölpreis und umfassende Produktionsdrosselung, um ihn zu erreichen. In einer seiner jüngsten Pressekonferenzen feierte er die Entscheidung der OPEC Plus, die Fördermengen zu drosseln, um den Preis so nach oben zu treiben. Russia talked about 10 million barrels. Russia and Saudi Arabia are fighting over this and as everybody knows it's you know really killing an industry hurting Russia badly hurting Saudi Arabia badly it may be 10 and it may be more than that I was actually told it may be 10 as I told somebody before it may be 10 and it may be more than that maybe it's 15 Wir schauen uns jetzt gemeinsam an was die ölfördernden Länder wie Saudi Arabien und Russland die OPEC plus im Schilde führen und wie lange der Ölpreis so niedrig bleiben wird denn auch wenn er nicht mehr unter Null oder auf Null ist, natürlich ist er immer noch rekordverdächtig niedrig. 
Ich spreche mit Antoine Haar vom Center on Global Energy Policy an der Columbia Universität. Er ist Gründer und Chief Analyst bei Kairos, einer Datenanalysefirma für den Energiemarkt. Und dann habe ich mit Mark Mills vom Think Tank Manhattan Institute gesprochen. Dort beobachtet er die Energiemärkte. Und dann erzählt der Ölhändler Jeff Grossman, der hat 40 Jahre lang auf dem Parkett der NYMEX gearbeitet. Also da, wo der Ölpreis von der Marke WTI, WTI entsteht. Und auch heute liefere ich Ihnen ein kurzes Update aus New York und wie wir uns gerade im Kampf gegen Covid-19 schlagen. Der Ausbruch von Covid-19 belastet die Wirtschaft rund um den Globus auf unterschiedliche Art und Weise. Und wir haben ja auch schon über einige Auswirkungen gesprochen. Die Nachfrage nach Öl ist in den letzten Wochen weltweit um schätzungsweise 30 Prozent gefallen. Einen solchen Einbruch hat es noch nie zuvor gegeben, nicht mal in den beiden Weltkriegen. Selbst erfahrene Ölhändler wie Jeff Grossman sind geschockt. Er hat fast 40 Jahre Berufserfahrung. Grossman hat die Ölkrisen in den 80ern auf dem Parkett erlebt, den Golfkrieg, volatile Ölpreise in der Finanzkrise und die Ölflut von 2010. Aber negative Preise hat es nie gegeben in dieser Zeit. There have been runaway markets in, in certain cases, but never this extensive for this long. This has been, this is unprecedented. When you're talking about a market that goes virtually to almost a, a third of its value in a short amount of time, that is very scary for everyone involved, for producers, for traders. Uh, again, I, I can't remember a time, and I've always said, you always think you're never going to be surprised. Well, this, the way we're, the, the market traded is, is a surprise to everybody. Vor der Küste Kaliforniens, in den Gewässern von Long Beach bis zur Bucht von San Francisco, kreuzten letzte Woche drei Dutzend Öltanker, beladen mit einer einst wertvollen Fracht, die gerade niemand haben will und die niemand lagern kann. Vor allem die Speicher in den USA sind voll bis fast oben hin. Antoine H. vom Center on Global Energy Policy. The uh, potential for optimizing available capacity is reduced. You actually have less capacity than in normal times because everybody is looking for spare capacity at the same time. So you have tremendous competition and you have the emergence of bottlenecks. Everybody is trying to channel the oil to the same storage tanks and the capacity of the system to, to carry the oil, the, the pipeline capacity, the, the shipping capacity is limited and you, you have the emergence of, of bottlenecks that prevent the full optimization of storage And that creates a backlog, a backup that really backs up supply, increases potential for depressed prices in specific markets. Teilweise bezahlten Ölproduzentenkäufer also dafür, wenn sie ihnen nur das Öl abnahmen und lagerten. Die Preise sind in der vergangenen Woche aber nicht nur gefallen, sie schwankten auch stark. Das liegt nicht nur an der fehlenden Nachfrage. Es liegt auch daran, wie der Ölpreis entsteht. Und das geschieht am Terminmarkt, dort, wo Jeff Grossman als Händler 40 Jahre lang Futures Fair und gekauft hat. Dort handeln Investoren Papiere über den Kauf und Verkauf von Öl oder anderen Rohstoffen zu einem vorher festgelegten Preis. Grossman musste dem Käufer einen Verkäufer finden und andersrum. Und das lautstark und mit vollem Körpereinsatz. I was the person they found me. Granted, they did ask my advice or whatever, which I, you know, gave sometimes begrudgingly. But I really was the the facilitator of of a trade. I, if we had a buyer, I had to find, I had to find, I had to go into the open market, 
and find a you know find a seller. Same in reverse, a seller to find a buyer. But it wasn't let's say it was an open outcry market, so it was there was never I wasn't definitely dealing with one individual in particular to get the other side done. I was there to get it at the best possible price. Am Terminmarkt wird also spekuliert mit dem Ölpreis. Der Preis der WTI Mai Futures fiel vergangenen Montag auf gut minus 37 Dollar pro Fass. Das bedeutete, dass es deutlich mehr Verkäufer des Papiers gab als Käufer. Der Großteil der Anleger wollte aus dem Papier heraus, egal zu welchem Preis, denn es war keine gute Anlage mehr. Eine Lieferung des Öls im Mai wollten sie erst recht nicht, also liquidierten sie das Papier. Reihenweise. Denn hier in den USA sind die Speicher besonders voll. Die Rohölvorräte der USA stiegen in der Woche bis zum 17. April um 15 Millionen Barrel und schlugen damit fast den Rekord von 535 Millionen Barrel, der 2017 aufgestellt wurde. Bis die Produktionseinschränkungen greifen, werden die Lagerbestände voraussichtlich weiter steigen. Cushing in Oklahoma, der Hauptumschlagplatz von Erdöl in den Vereinigten Staaten, ist beinahe voll. Die wenigen freien Kapazitäten sind bereits reserviert. Momentan können Anbieter mehr Geld verdienen mit Speicherplatz für Öl als mit dem Öl selbst. Die US-Regierung will trotzdem extrem niedriges Öl kaufen – um ihre strategischen Reserven aufzufüllen. Trump will bis zu 75 Millionen Fässer Rohöl kaufen, sagt er letzte Woche im Weißen Haus. If we could buy it for nothing, we're going to take everything we can get. The only thing I like better than that is where they pay you to take the oil. But no, we'd like to have Congress, uh, this is a great time to buy oil. And we'd like to have Congress approve it so that we could, instead of just storing it for the big, usually the big companies, because... I think we have 75 million gallons right now capacity. That's a lot. It's uh, we've been building it up over a period of time, but that's a lot. 75 million barrels. So we're going to get either ask for permission to buy it or we'll store it. One way or the other, it will be full. Die Pandemie und der Zusammenbruch der Nachfrage sind dabei nicht das einzige Problem. Schon zuvor haben die OPEC, die ölfördernden Länder und Russland und die USA das Öl im Kampf um Marktanteile massenweise gefördert. Dahinter steckt der Kalkül. Die großen Produzenten fördern Öl kosteneffizienter als kleinere Konkurrenten. Die Ölindustrie in den USA ist hoch verschuldet und steht im Gegensatz zu Russland auf tünnernen Füßen. Antoine Haaf hat die Strategie der Ölstaaten auf spieltheoretische Strategien untersucht. Demnach warten Saudi-Arabien und Russland regelrecht auf Schocks in der Nachfrage um dann ihren langen Atem beweisen und Konkurrenten aus dem Markt drängen zu können. So you have this this repeated pattern of the Saudis pushing OPEC or pushing large producers to increase production in the face of a demand collapse. And it, you know, if you look at it through the lens of uh, of game theory, it actually makes sense. What the game, what the mathematical approach to to uh, the oil market suggests, is to put it very simply <coughs> that. Um, OPEC is not really in the business of, of keeping prices stable, as it often says it tries to do. It's really in the business of maximizing revenues for the large, low-cost producers. And to do so, they really have to balance two very different objectives. One is high prices. The other one is a high market share. And those objectives are in conflict. Because if you, if you raise the price, then you encourage higher cost production and you end up losing market share. Bei höheren Preisen investieren viele verschuldete Ölproduzenten in die Ölförderung. 
Für sinkende Preise, so wie jetzt, sind sie dann sehr anfällig und werden in die Insolvenz und aus dem Markt gezwungen. Die US-Ölschieferindustrie hatte bereits 2019 Probleme, Geld zu generieren und das von einem WTI-Preis von durchschnittlich 57 US-Dollar pro Barrel. Im vergangenen Jahr haben mehr als 40 Ölunternehmen Insolvenz beantragt mit Schulden in Höhe von 26 Milliarden US-Dollar. Für Russland bietet es gerade eine gute Gelegenheit, den Markt weiter zu disziplinieren, sagt Antoine Haaf. The coronavirus really provided a golden opportunity in that perspective to, to go for a production increase and to test the market and to drive, drive the price down and drive the competition out of the market. Nur hat auch Russland nicht damit gerechnet, dass eine Pandemie die Ölnachfrage praktisch komplett versiegen lassen könnte. Die OPEC Plus haben sich in letzter Minute auf gemeinsame Drosselungen der Fördermengen ab dem 1. Mai eingestellt. Ab da planen die OPEC und Russland ihre kombinierte Ölproduktion für Mai und Juni um 9,7 Millionen Fässer pro Tag zu reduzieren. Die Vereinbarung ist massiv und stellt den größten Einschnitt in der Geschichte der OPEC dar. Die Kürzung ist mehr als doppelt so hoch wie die des Ölkartells während der Finanzkrise 2008. Antoine Huff. So the, the levels uh, that are being discussed are really uh, unprecedented. It's really historic and it's also historic in, in terms of the number of participants. It's a very wide agreement. It's not just OPEC, it's not just OPEC plus, it's really OPEC plus plus. And it, it was really remarkable, even though the US did not really fully commit to a, a formal managed production cut. Bis die Produktionsdrosselungen tatsächlich greifen, wird es aber noch etwas dauern. Während die Ölspeicher also noch eine Weile lang weiter überlaufen werden, könnte die Abmachung eine beruhigende Wirkung auf die Terminmärkte haben. Antoine Huff. The OPEC Plus Agreement, you know, if it's implemented, doesn't lift prices immediately, doesn't remove downward pressure on prices, at least in the short term. But I think it was also important to convey a sense that the international community was determined to bring stability to the market and to, to restore confidence in the market. Bis dahin wird sich der Ölmarkt verändert haben. Vor allem die Anzahl an Spielern dürfte sich verkleinern. Aber auch an Saudi-Arabien, den USA und Russland wird das nicht spurlos vorübergehen. Ölhändler Jeff Grossman. They can hang in there for a while, but at these levels it doesn't pay to be in the business. It, uh, they may have no choice but to be in the business, but they will, they will not be making money. They'll be, they'll be in deep, dire trouble, believe me. That's, at these levels they can't function. Und genau darüber spreche ich nun mit Mark Mills, der uns noch einmal eine andere Sicht auf die Dinge gibt. Hi, Mark. This is Sophie. Hello, Sophie. What is happening right now when it comes to oil prices? And what of that is real? Like, what of that is really about actual supply and demand? Because that doesn't just change overnight. So what we've been seeing, I mean, oil prices were down and below zero. And now they're up again uh, significantly from where they were. And this cannot be because of actual changes in oil. This has to be because of the futures market and expectations. The daily price of WTI does not reflect anything except it dominantly reflects the nature of transactions that are underway in paper and financial markets. Right? And also you're seeing, you're seeing the spot prices reflecting 
paper activities that are, don't involve the physical possession of oil or a physical trade, but a trade of paper. I don't think it tells you very much about the uh, about anything except paper transactions, psychology of markets, availability of storage. I mean, I, it doesn't tell anything, anything fundamental because the market is still at the same level of oversupply and the same level of storage as there's price discovery going on with respect to discovery of storage. There's political events, but there's you know there's just no question that this is a level of demand destruction that the world has never seen, even in war times, in either absolute or percentage terms. Apparently, there needs to be something done on the supply side right now, since we cannot really do that much on the demand side. You can't um, do much on the supply side either. You can only do only you can do on the supply side is also in the future. Once an oil well is producing, it's producing. It's not, you can't turn it, take a, a spigot and turn it off. So the reason that the commodities are doing what they're doing is because you can't do much about either. That's why the prices swing so wildly. So the statement that's generally being thrown around in the public domain, that we have to do something with the supply side, that you know, the Saudis and Russians cut the supply, that, that, that's true, except those are all prospective. They're not doing anything about what's going in the market right now. The output will, will slowly decline. Um, so we will... We will reduce supply, but it won't happen fast because you can't. It's not like a bathtub where you just turn the spigot off. How long would it take, assuming that the economy is back to something like normal? How long would it take to reduce those huge amounts in the storage capacities in a way that it's going to impact the prices in a positive way? Obviously, you could do it simplistically. Um, the, the world could, would consume it all in 10 days, right? A little more than 10 days, 12 or 14 days. So it's not gonna, that's not going to be the only source of supply, but it probably creates an overhang for at least, you know, three to six months, is my guess. I mean, there are various players in the market, and there are big players who can produce at low costs and where this, this model might look really different. But in the end, what's going on right now, I am assuming it's going to change the oil industry in a big way And Saudi Arabia, Russia, the U.S., they're just going to be able to push smaller countries out of the market. You're right. I mean, a lot of small countries need high-priced oil and, and access to tankers to get their oil out. You've got a lot of uh, tankers just being rented by Saudi Arabia and others as storage. So they're not available to move oil out of the small countries. There might even be some strategic background of pushing competitors who cannot go low cost for as long over the cliff, if you want. But at the same time, and you mentioned that obviously this kind of oil price is definitely harmful to Saudi Arabia, to Russia. So how bad is what is happening right now for um, those countries? We have to guess if Saudi Arabia is willing to spend $400 billion dollars because they're not going to stop funding their economy and risk a, revo you know, a revolt so that it could be very expensive for them. Same for Russia. That's a political guess. It's not a market guess. It's a pure, purely a political guess. But isn't there maybe a point of saying that is short-term pain, but in the long run, you're gaining market share? Yeah, oh, I, you're losing I, oh, I, revenue. Oh, yeah, I think that was the calculus. I think that's why they did it in January. I just, think, I just don't think they expected... I think it's pretty clear no one expected the world to shut down and have that much demand destruction. I think when Saudis and Russians did what they did, they clearly did it. In fact, we have, as you know, leaked 
leaked so-called confirmed statements, assuming we believe them, that the Saudi oil minister was, was you know, saying, good, let's just destroy shale business in America, that's good. And we suspect, one suspects many in the Saudi realm feel the same way. So that's why you do it. You discipline the market. It's just obviously they didn't expect it to do this, to be in this free fall. And the fact is they, they can't cut production enough in the short term to make much difference. I mean, the forward price of oil may be move up a bit. So you're right. I mean, this is back to the politics. Their, their calculus may be, you know, well, well, we'll just live with a couple more months of this and see who we can flush out, who we can scare from not coming back in the U.S. business. Because the more people that exit in the United States, the better it will be for Russia and Saudi Arabia on the other side. I agree. You, you just mentioned um, how many they can push out. Do you think there are any um, reasonable ex expectations that, that one can have about that, what it's going to do to, for example, the U.S. Uh, shale oil industry, since it's different, it's uh, able to produce at a cheaper price, so it might work differently. Do you have expectations for this particular industry um, looking at what's going on in the markets right now? I think it will almost certainly cause as, at least as much bankrupt, bankruptcies as it did last time in 2014, probably more. The wild card, which is now pure judgment call, is what happens on the other side as prices start and demand start to come back. Do people invest again in shale and, and resurrect it? Do people buy those assets? And why would you? My speculation is the assets will get bought, and the reason they'll get bought is, is twofold. The world's demand for oil will recover. It'll take a long time to go back to where it was, but it'll recover to, it will recover to the new low, if you like, of world production as the decline curve sets in. And the U.S. shale fields, the high-quality ones, will be cheaper in the future than they are today to buy and cheaper than they are today to operate because of technology. So as technology keeps getting better, the assets become more valuable, not less valuable. Brent is following slowly. It's kind of following the trend of WTI, but it's yeah, yeah. not as strongly. Uh, why is that? Right. Because WTI basically reflects the ability to store at Cushing, and Cushing is nearly full. So... Cushing itself is near maximum, near, not that, at storage capacity. It's near its record. There's more oil capacity there for storage, but nobody likes to use it up. They have to have a physical place to put oil if they need it. So that's why Cushing. Whereas globally, there's other places oil can go and, be, and put in storage. So there's, the world has storage that's not WTI. Cushing is pretty full because it's in the shell fields. So it's It's a, you know, it's a, it, it's a good example of how disconnected the U.S. market can be from global market. I just listened to the press conference of Donald Trump from Monday, I believe, and he said something yeah. like renting out storage capacities and making yeah. money off of that. What kind of storage capacities is he talking about in the U.S. right now? I, where are they? I think there's more available than that is publicly stated. Then we have... Yeah, a fair bit of storage, but it's really, if you think about it, you can only absorb two or three weeks of overproduction, and then the sprows fill. So if, even if there's additional storage that we don't know about that the, the feds have access to, there's probably not more than a month's worth of storage capacity for overproduction. But the decline curve is there, too. So as you know, the decline curve is pretty rapid for shale fields. 
So it, it can make quite a difference using the Spro to take some pressure off of storage. I think the, the, the storage, usually storage plays itself out. We'll, we'll see. The fact that the Brent didn't drop as much would tell you, at least I think it does, indirectly, that traders know that there's other storage available in the world. Otherwise, it would have looked, looked like WTI if there's nowhere to put it. So I, I think that the non-OCD countries have more storage than that because there's a lot more of them, and they have much more incentive to store oil when they're not producers than we do. Think about it. So he conceded that they suspect, put it, that there's at least twice as much storage in the non-OECD world as is publicly recognized, which would be consistent with what I would think would be the case. I think that's probably the case. And if it is the case, that would explain Brent. Is there anything that Trump can say that would help? I mean, he has been talking a lot about the oil price, and I'm just wondering if this has any substantial or can have any substantial effect, especially when we talk about the um, futures market. It is about sentiment. It is about political yeah. news. Yeah. So is there anything that he could do? Maybe be more, I don't know, trying to enforce more supply cuts, or is there anything he can do? Or say. So I, first, I'm, I'm glad he's not enforcing supply cuts, and I'm glad he keeps saying that's happening naturally. I think he's saying the right things. I don't know that he could do anything more than he's saying. He's renting space out for stores. I think the only other thing he could say is that uh, I'm a direct Department of Energy to find out if they could expand storage capacity. If we need to store oil to make sure our, our, our companies can sell it even at low prices so they have some cash flow, I'll do that. I guess the other thing he could do is decide that, that the oil industry is a strategic asset and provide the same kind of um, financial backstop to oil production as you do to the mortgage markets. You know, you don't want to have banks collapse because they're strategic to the economy. If we believe that not being subservient to, to Saudi Arabia is strategic, you could do things like that. I think it would be difficult to do with this Congress. They don't think he could do anything about it till, uh, until one after the election. If the Republicans get the House, they'd have a shot at it. But no Democrat-controlled House is going to do what they would consider a quote, bailout for the oil industry. It's a long way of saying, yes, he could do something additional. I'm not sure the time is right to do that. I mean, it's a lot, we're talking about a lot of jobs. That's what I'm thinking. In well, yes, and so that's, that's the issue. Is that If he looks at the magnitude of the jobs... If all these companies go bankrupt, then I have to, I've got people, you know, millions of people who are going to have to be going on unemployment versus backstopping the, the companies. But you, the challenge is you have to think whether or not the money will keep the jobs. This is the difficult part. Whether injecting money into it will, will keep people employed. It's not always the case. You can inject the money. It doesn't necessarily still have to lay people off. But you're really making the calculation that they lay off 100% or 50%. And I think that's really what the calculation is going to be. And that's a hard one to justify putting money into private markets, but that's, that's essentially what we're going to be doing. Mark, thank you so much. That was a really interesting and helpful conversation. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Have a good day. Bye-bye. How are you doing, New York? Dazu habe ich zwei Studienergebnisse für Sie rausgesucht. Und die sagen sowohl was über die Zeit vor als auch nach Corona aus. Wir haben begonnen, immun gegen das Virus zu werden. 
Zumindest, wenn wir diesem Verhältnis hier Glauben schenken. 1 zu 5. Einer von fünf New Yorkern hat Antikörper. 20% der rund 1300 Menschen in New York City, die diese Woche auf Coronavirus-Antikörper getestet wurden, hatten sie. Die Ergebnisse stammen aus einer staatlichen Untersuchung, bei der insgesamt 3000 Menschen im gesamten Bundesstaat New York getestet wurden. Auf den gesamten Bundesstaat bezogen ist die Immunität etwas geringer. Es sei trotzdem unklar, wie aussagekräftig die Ergebnisse seien, räumt Governor Andrew Cuomo ein. Es ist nicht klar, wie genau die Antikörpertests insgesamt sind. Eine weitere Studie zeigt, dass es außerdem weitaus früher Fälle in New York City gegeben hat. Forscher der Northeastern University haben die Ausbreitung modelliert. Als der erste Fall offiziell bestätigt war am 1. März, trugen schätzungsweise bereits knapp 11.000 New Yorker das Virus. Warum das wichtig ist, dazu hier Governor Andrew Cuomo in einem TV-Interview letzte Woche Donnerstag. Well, look, it's an eye-opener. I think it's important because we have to do a retrospective on this because I'm afraid it's not only in the past, it's going to be in the future. Look, we're learning. Uh, when they say that China has a virus uh, last November, last December, then uh, I think the, the flares have to go up at that point, because if China has a virus, that virus is going to get on a plane, it's going to go to Europe, it's going to get on another plane, it's going to come to New York, it's going to come to California. So uh, they're now saying that the, the virus was here in, in February, maybe January. Right. So all these actions we're taking in March, the horse is out of the barn. Als New York sich im März langsam begann zu wappnen, war das Kind also schon in den Brunnen gefallen. Daraus müssen wir lernen, sagt Como. Ich verabschiede mich nun von Ihnen. Danke fürs Zuhören. Ich hoffe, Sie konnten etwas mitnehmen. Wenn Sie Anregungen, Wünsche, Feedback haben, schreiben Sie mir gerne eine E-Mail an wallstreetweekly at mediapioneer.com. Wir hören uns nächsten Montag wieder. Bleiben Sie gesund. Von ganzem Herzen, Ihre Sophie Schimanski.